Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Good morning. I was on the Brendan O'Connor show on RT Radio on Sunday morning, and um, before... I went out to RTE, uh, got a call from producer of the show asking me what I thought of what had happened in South William Street the night before. And um, to be honest, I hadn't been looking at social media on Saturday night, so I missed the infamous tweet from the chief medical officer, Tony Houlihan, um, expressing his disgust when he went into town at about quarter past eight on Saturday night and saw thousands of um, kids drinking on the streets inside around the South William Street area. And he was absolutely horrified and shocked. And of course, um, on the Brendan O'Connor show, this took up a lot of discussion. And we've seen subsequently a lot of demonization of young people, um, a lot of people expressing absolute horror about what went on. Um, But I I did notice that um, you tweeted um, some strong stuff about the CMO's tweet. So what's your perspective on what happened? The thing that struck me at the time was that it smacked of moralizing as much as science-based policy advice in the wake of the pandemic. I I got the impression, I don't want to personalize it on Tony Holohan, I think that this, my comments could apply to a whole range of scientists, by no means all, and indeed one or two politicians. I also saw somebody tweet an extreme version of of what I said, which is that Archbishop McQuaid makes a comeback, but without the skirts, which perhaps is a little over the top and a little cruel. But I do think that tweet captured the the spirit of what I was trying to get at, which was that this wasn't about COVID, it was about moralizing. 
And so if you looked at the pictures in the Irish Times subsequently, at least the ones that they put up online, of all that litter, we can express horror about littering and say something needs to be done. Litter has got nothing to do with COVID. Zero. Absolutely nothing. Slightly more seriously, I think, the issue is, again, this one of outdoors versus indoors. All of the science has suggested that the vast bulk, perhaps as much as 80 to 90%, perhaps even more of all COVID cases globally, will probably have been caught indoors. We now know far more than we did about airborne transmission, and it is airborne. So all of that stuff that we did at the beginning about isolating our shopping for 72 hours or, or even our hand washing, quite frankly, seem to be largely unnecessary. We know much more about transmission. We know it, that it is in enclosed poorly ventilated spaces. So I think that what the chief medical officers had to say didn't really accord with all of that science about where COVID is caught, where it's not caught, and the conditions under which it is caught. Again, we can point to outdoor gatherings last summer across the world, actually. In the UK, there were lots of protest marches for all sorts of different subjects. Black Lives Matter, for example. On hot days last summer, we had horrified newspaper editors exclaiming about crowded beaches. And as far as we know, and I would be the first to acknowledge that not all of the evidence is in, but as far as we know, on the basis of quite a lot of evidence, there weren't big COVID outbreaks as a result of either protest marches or gatherings on beaches and such like, all consistent with the idea that most of COVID, the vast bulk of it is caught indoors. So I do think that having a go at young people for drinking outdoors was inappropriate. I think it flew in the face of science, and it was interesting to see quite sober commentators, far more sober than I, react in similar ways. I saw one tweet from a well-known property economist from Trinity College, Dublin, tweet that the medical community wants people to retreat to their south-facing South County Dublin back gardens, when in fact most of those people who were out drinking on, on Saturday were probably from apartment buildings and didn't have gardens in which to drink. So I do think it smacked of moralizing, and I did think it was inappropriate, and I did think it wasn't following the science. Chris, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued by your reference to um, Archbishop McQuaid and moralizing, because I saw quotes from Sam McConkie, another member of Neffet, um, in the media yesterday morning, where he was basically uh, describing walking around Stevens Green and, again, South County Dublin, and that he was, you know, reasonably satisfied with how people were behaving, that there were crowds, but they were in controlled groups. So he gave it his seal of approval. And that really got my goat up because, you know, these unelected officials think they can go around moralizing to the rest of us about how we how we live our lives. And um, it reminded me of um, my late mother uh, told me stories about back in the old days when there'd be a, a dance in the local dance hall that the parish priest would be going around with a stick um, beating um, courting couples out of the bushes and so on. And it just strikes me from McConkie's comments and from the CMO's tweet on Saturday night and from a lot of the other feedback we've subsequently heard that this is exactly how people are viewing this at the moment. Um, I would Totally agree with you on the whole litter issue. Um, that is totally disgusting. But I mean, it's it's not just South William Street. I go down to my local park every morning and you can see the litter around. And what amazes me is that the Greta Thunberg um, generation that is meant to be so 
uh, focused on the environment. We've had children protesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and yet they have a very, very strange attitude to littering. So huge inconsistencies there, but that's kind of getting away from the main point of what we're talking about here. Um, I personally um, had no problems with what happened Saturday night. As you say, there is no scientific evidence available to suggest that some of these super spreader events like Salt Hill Beach, um, student parties in Limerick and so on, resulted in a serious upsurge in infections because it's outdoor stuff um, and it's certainly um, lower on the risk spectrum than indoor activities. Um, I saw somebody tweeting this morning that they were in Dundrum Town Centre on Saturday and that it was absolutely packed, the largest crowds that he'd seen there since February 2020. And yet there's not a word about that, but yet these people are indoors and obviously the risk factor. But it's a question of demonizing young people. And, and let's face it, um, I would believe that the best years of one's life are basically between 18 and 30. Uh, you're just out of school. You might be starting to earn a bit of money. Uh, you're starting to explore life in a serious way. Um, you're allowed to consume alcohol legally and all, all of that stuff. So they're, they're good years. And effectively, that generation has had... 15% of that time taken away from them, which they will never get back over the last 15 months. And yet they turn around now and demonize them when they do what young people do is try and go out and enjoy themselves. Uh, I found it utterly disgusting, I have to say, and I found it a total lack of understanding about human nature. And this brings me back to something that I have believed about Neffet. And, you know, that tweet from Ronan Lyons kind of reflects this as well. Um, I, I do believe um, that they live cosseted lives. You know, they, they are public sector workers in the main. They have guaranteed jobs, guaranteed pensions, uh, probably live in, you know, nice homes with nice gardens where they wouldn't have to go into socialise in South William Street. So it's, it's, it's a little bit sickening, uh, but we can be sure that this sort of moralising is going to keep going on until we eventually come out the other end of this. Um, I thought somebody summed it up really well on social media again this morning. There was a joke um, tweet saying that Gardaí have had a controlled explosion on a four-pack of Dutch gold in Dame Court in Dublin. And that kind of sums up the moralistic attitude that a lot of people have at the moment. I say, young people, get out there, enjoy yourselves, because that's what life is about that's how young people should live their lives yeah and i think that it, it behoves us perhaps to at least ask the question is there any science behind any of this and we've already said we don't think there's very much but of course there, it's nothing is zero risk in, in in this crisis nothing is zero risk at any times in our lives about anything and it's all about the balance of risk and i think that's what we've lost and um, if what the medics are saying is that there's still a small chance you know of getting covid outdoors that if you're shouting and screaming in somebody's face you can still spread it that is true. But it's all about this balanced assessment of risk rather than this drawing of hard lines in the sand beyond which you must not go. That's what bothers me about this. I mean, broadening the discussion out a bit more widely, one of the things that puzzles me about all of this is that in all countries, not just Ireland, uh, we've effectively, for long periods of our lives, essentially allowed the authorities to put us under house arrest. And probably with good reason, health systems being overwhelmed, cutting the number of people who are going to die. It's a good, the restrictions were needed at some point in time. 
The thing that bothers me about this, though, is what it means for the future. The lack of scrutiny, the lack of questioning, the extent to which we'll now get a whole bunch of stick from a whole bunch of people for this podcast, for what we've been saying, is, you know, people will say, some people will say, we're not allowed to say it, and that we're evil for saying what we're saying, that the government is all, always right, all that, all that kind of stuff. What worries me is that the powers that the government has taken to itself to impose these lockdowns, as I say somewhat um, in exaggerated fashion, putting me under house arrest for prolonged periods, the alacrity with which we've allowed them to do it stores up trouble for the future. And this is not me being a libertarian wingnut. Imagine some authoritarian government coming into power in any one of the countries in which we're talking about here. Imagine Sinn Féin in government with these powers, Jim. What do you think would happen next? Um, I think I'd move to Portugal. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would, I would agree with you, Chris. I, I think the manner in which the power has been handed over to non-elected people is extraordinary, and um, those powers have now been extended out to November, and there wasn't a whimper about it over the last few weeks. You know, government politicians who voted for that yet at the same time come out. Um, you know, cr- critical of some of the commentary about what happened Saturday night, um, yet they don't make the connection about um, the sort of moralizing we're seeing and the sorts of powers that have been handed over. Uh, I think it is extraordinary. It is sinister. It certainly does show us what could happen at any stage down the road if the wrong set of people get into government in any country. Um, I was astounded yesterday by another response from Dublin City Council because one of the issues that's been highlighted consistently every weekend since people started going into town again is the lack of public toilets and the lack of waste paper baskets to put the rubbish into even if they wanted to and um, a Dublin City Council official commented yesterday that if they put in more outdoor facilities such as waste paper bins and public toilets it would just draw more crowds into the city centre. I think that is one of the most bizarre comments I've heard during the whole COVID crisis. Um, it deserves to be put up there um, and framed um, as, as an indication of just how stupid and how a lot of people just don't get actually uh, the realities of life. I thought, I thought that was absolutely extraordinary. But um, yeah, that there will be huge reverberations from all of this, um, you know, for a long time to come, an indelible legacy. One of the things that I said in that tweet that you mentioned earlier on is that these kinds of circumstances appeal to everybody's inner traffic warden. And I think that's putting it mildly in, in the case of some of these instances and examples of authoritarian behavior that we're talking about and worrying about for the future is that inside an awful lot of, of us politicians, some politicians in particular, in some countries, we can see it all over Eastern Europe at the moment. For example, we saw it for four years in the United States recently, and we're seeing hints of it in the UK, is that if you allow authoritarianism, the extreme version of, a, of an individual's inner traffic warden, come out, this power can be used and it can be abused. And the reason why we spent centuries trying to wrest control from despots and potential and actual authoritarians is because we always know what happens next. The reason why we have these systems, these checks and balances, which quite frankly are being chucked out of the window by the type of legislation that you're talking about, it's a worry. Chris, on the topic of excessive powers and authoritarian regimes, it's interesting what's happening in relation to China at the moment. 
Uh, President Biden has recently ordered U.S. intelligence to intensify efforts to determine the origins of COVID-19. And U.S. intelligence has two possibilities. One is that it emerged naturally. So it, it basically spread from animal species to human species. Or secondly, and I suppose from a more sinister perspective, that it was an experiment on being undertaken in a lab on the connection between bats and coronaviruses that escaped out of the lab. Um, President Trump and Mike Pompeo um, over a year ago were positing this notion that it was a Chinese manufactured virus and they were absolutely derided by many people at the time, um, including, I think, President Biden. But now Biden, Anthony Fauci, who believed there was no scientific evidence a few months back to support the view that it escaped out of a lab, is now of the view that perhaps it did. So, and a lot of virologists in the States are also um, increasing of that view and that, that possibility. Um, so the U.S. intelligence is, is investigating. Um, they, ha they have some evidence, for example, three workers in the Wuhan Institute of Virology back in November 2019 were hospitalized with some sort of strange virus. And um, so there's, there, there, there's, there's a bit of evidence backing up this suggestion. Um, I mean, what do you think? And why the change in mindset? And I suppose more importantly, what do you think the implications of this would be for China's relationship with the rest of the world, which is really, really under pressure anyway in recent months? This issue couldn't be more important for a number of reasons. The interesting question that you raise, which is why has Biden done this? And so they must have some evidence. I don't know. I don't have access to this evidence. I saw the same story that you just referred to there, which was the Wall Street Journal reporting of three people from this Institute of Virology in hospital as early as last November with coronavirus-like symptoms. That's not been confirmed. The Chinese have downplayed it to the point of denying it. And the Chinese themselves have said that this is all a figment of a conspiracy theory imagination in the US intelligence services. But clearly somebody is whispering in Biden's ear that something went, something might well have happened. We don't know how much they actually know and how much is speculation. In the spirit of speculation, I would say, as I've said many times on this podcast, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I am much more, you know, it's cock up rather than conspiracy when it comes to any of these sorts of things. But occasionally, I have to acknowledge the conspiracy theorists might well be right. I think it's Occam's razor, the thing that says, look for simple solutions, or I paraphrase slightly there. You know, you have this place that nobody in this part of the world had ever heard of before, suddenly becoming the center of the global pandemic. And it has not but one, but two um, research centers, labs that look at these sorts of coronavirus things. They're the Institute of Virology and the Wuhan CDC as well. I only learned recently there was two centers, not just one. It all looks a bit coincidental to me. And but as I say, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. But for a long time, I wouldn't have. I would have said in answer to your question, I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a lab escape. The appalling vista is that the Chinese have actually covered it up, and I think that's what could lead to trouble. Scott Morrison, the Australian. Prime Minister, I think he is, has previously speculated out loud that it might have been the Chinese and has called for investigations. 
That plus their comments about the Uyghurs and what's been, the, the cruelties that have been visited on that population over the last year or two have led to China declaring, going from trying to be one of Australia's best friends. It was only a few years ago that Xi Jinping was speaking, addressing the Australian parliament in terms of great friendship, brotherhood and cooperation. And now they, they've, they're waging a trade war with Australia, tariffs on things like Australian wine and a whole rake of other pro, uh, products, plus a rhetorical PR campaign of the most vitriolic kind against Australia for merely suggesting this. So that brings me to what I think will happen if Biden were to conclude, if the US intelligence services were to conclude that it was China, it was a lab leak and they have covered it up. I think the, the consequences could be dreadful, particularly looking at that example of what the Chinese had done with Australia. The Chinese would, I think, we would risk pushing the Chinese into doing something writ large there and the previous trade war with Australia that I mentioned, the trade war with Donald Trump that he started, would look small beer in comparison to what might happen next. And I think that countries of Putin has invaded small countries to cause distractions from what he's actually doing, from what he's up to. Um, and I'm not suggesting for a second that China would do something similar, but I think people would start to wonder just what will China's reaction to being found guilty of this actually be. And so that's one reason why I think the US intelligence services will actually step back from a definitive conclusion. I think they'll probably they'll have to reach a probabilistic conclusion and say it's 50-50 or 60-40 one or the other and that they don't have enough evidence because the Chinese haven't cooperated with the with the investigation. So I think there'll be lots of calls for China to cooperate which they won't listen to, but they won't reach a definitive conclusion that the Chinese did it because the consequences could be so dreadful. And who knows what the, how the Chinese would react to that? We've seen how they've reacted to Australia. I think it could be pretty grim. And I think financial markets, not least, this could be the catalyst that, that sparks the great correction that everybody's been muttering about for a long time now. And so that reason alone, I think, would, would prompt advisors within the Biden administration to say, hang on a minute, let's not rock the boats too much unless we're 100% sure. So I think, I think, on balance, my prejudices are that, yes, it was a lab leak. No, I don't think that there will be definitive evidence emerging. But if it did, the consequences would be absolutely dreadful, not least for financial markets because of what China might do next in retaliation to this. But, but Chris, are you confusing here um, sort of biological warfare with a lab leak? I mean, there is no suggestion that what the Chinese did was actually to create a virus that they would use for chemical or biological warfare. What the, well, as I understand it, what the Chinese labs were doing, both of those labs, for example, and many more across China, were investigating and carrying out experiments on how the coronavirus has transmitted from bats to um, human beings and, you know, the, the SARS outbreak, for example, some years back, some of those SARS outbreaks, some of the other flus. So there was apparently a lot of valuable research going on in those laboratories, um, but it was not for nefarious reasons. And um, but 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 I but I guess the point would be that back in 2018, US diplomats, for example, expressed deep concern about the safety, the scrutiny, the accountability of those experiments. And I guess the biggest problem of all would be the manner in which the Chinese reacted to the outbreak back in early 2020. They basically tried to cover it up for 
a while um, and then eventually could do so no longer. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to suggest for a second that there were nefarious motives behind the creation, potential creation of a coronavirus in a lab. I'm sorry if I, I gave that impression. I too agree it could easily have been for medical research purposes only. But if you Google gain-of-function coronavirus, you could be terrified as to what this might have emerged from. Uh, but as I say, I don't want to fuel any more conspiracy theories. But look at that phrase, gain-of-function, and wonder what it actually means. So yeah, I, I, all I'm suggesting is that the Chinese re reacted badly when it was suggested by the Australians that, they, that this had been a lab outbreak that they had covered it up. Given that, I can only expect they would react badly if somebody else was to do the same as the Australians. And so I think the consequences could be severe. We talk about the Chinese government, the Communist Party in particular, being very concerned about loss of face. Those sorts of cliched, hackneyed expressions do apply to, to, the, to that Chinese Communist Party, I think. They clearly are concerned with their image, not least to the rest of the world, but also to how it would look to their population. I mean, how would the Chinese people themselves feel if there had been a cover-up? So I think they, they are motivated to try and make sure that this was not a lab leak. Um, that's all that I'm saying. Okay, no, it's in interesting. And uh, you, you mentioned China's relationship with the United States and Australia. But if you look at the issues China's had with India over the last couple of years as well, uh, there is the Taiwan issue. Ge geopolitically, uh, the world actually is becoming a very, very dangerous place at the moment. So um, it's, I'm sure China is a topic we will return to in um, a lot more detail over coming podcasts. Um, I was interested yesterday, Chris, the OECD published its latest assessment of the global economy. And um, basically, the, the message that's been sent out by the OECD, which is pretty much mirroring stuff we've seen from the International Monetary Fund in recent times. They're now expecting global growth of 5.8% for 2021 and 4.4% in 2022. As recently as December, which is just five months ago, the OECD was forecasting 4.2% growth for this year. So a pretty dramatic um, upgrading of economic forecasts. Um, and, uh, you know, by 2022, most of the world is expected to be back um, at pre-pandemic levels of economic activity. But I guess the warning sign out of all of this is that the just as the virus has hit different countries um, in disproportionate ways, the recovery will not be even. Um, and countries, for example, that are very dependent on tourism. And you could look at countries like Portugal, Spain, Italy in a European context. But indeed, globally, countries where tourism and international travel are very important will be much slower to recover. Developing countries will be much slower to recover. And there will be a massive legacy from COVID-19 left in countries that were already in serious difficulty. Um, I guess one of the things that also does interest me is the fact, and I say this from an economic rather than a human stroke health perspective, that those countries who try to pursue zero COVID, um, Australia, New Zealand particularly, that from an economic perspective, uh, they haven't done much better than the rest. And um, that that is kind of interesting also, because as you know, we've discussed it a lot on this podcast and others, the zero COVID people or the zeroids 
you know, they've been really influential in this country over the last 12 months. So it's good to see economic data backing up, you know, the proposition that zero COVID from an economic perspective made no sense whatsoever. Um, but it's it's also interesting, I think, that Australia and particularly New Zealand are now really struggling to reopen their economies because logically what they've done has prevented um, immunity building up within the population. Um, they haven't rolled out any semblance of a vaccination program. So how in the name of God are those countries actually going to reopen? Will they ever be able to reopen logically? Australia just had a budget a couple of weeks ago. And within that budget, it attracted quite a lot of attention in in some circles, not amongst the zero COVID, I have to say. The assumption was that Australia would not reopen its borders until the second half of next year. So there would not be no tourism in Australia until the second half of 2022. It It was a planning assumption contained in a budget. It wasn't a forecast and things can change. But it was a reflection, I think, of the factors that you're describing, which is that Australia has not vaccinated many people, has enjoyed a much lower COVID case rate and death rates, which is fantastic, unambiguously a a good thing, but now is faced with zero COVID. In the words of Mark Carney, when I interviewed Mark Carney recently, he described zero COVID as a forever strategy. How do you come out of it? And I think that that was very well put. And it's a very interesting question. Australia presumably will come out of it eventually whenever they have managed to get the, their population over the critical vaccination threshold. I'm actually reminded of something that, of course, during COVID, there's been very little COVID humour. Nobody's actually got any COVID jokes. They would be in very poor taste, wouldn't they, given all that we've experienced. But in a sign that I think that we might be just about maybe sort of kind of seeing the end of this in some countries, I saw a COVID joke for the first time this morning. And you tell me if you think it's in poor taste or not. And it's about Australia, Jim. Why have the Australians um, had a, a, a Spice Girl coronavirus experience? The answer is because they've all tried hard, like the Spice Girls, apart from Victoria. <laughs> And I'll leave. I'll, I'll I'll leave the. Um, oh God, Chris! I'll leave the comment. I'll leave the comments to, uh, to to other people. The second thing I wanted to mention is that we do say stuff on this that is opinionated, and um, we've had lots to say about zero COVID. We've had lots to say about lots of things. And one of the things that I have noticed, and again, this is me not being a conspiracy theorist, but you've been on these phone calls when been chatting three times in the last three weeks. Our on our phone calls, not this kind of conversation, but the actual old-fashioned telephones, albeit mobile phones, there's been a loud click. Uh, You've gone silent for about 10 seconds, and then I've heard our conversation played back to us, recorded conversation that we've just had a few seconds ago from the start played back to me over my headset. Um, It's happened three times now, Jim. Now, do you think we've upset somebody in, in either in, well, I don't know, the zeroids, the the Irish equivalent of MI six. I don't know whether whether you've got one or not. What who who are the Irish Secret Service? Yeah, Chris, I think you're being a drama queen again. Um, I suspect there's a simple technological explanation because um, I cannot possibly imagine how anybody would possibly want to record uh, the conversations that we have 
on the phone um, in in normal circumstances. So I'll I'll, I'll pass over that one, but we'll we'll keep an eye on it. Uh, getting getting back to the OECD report yesterday, um, I, I think um, they sent out some kind of interesting messages and policy advice pieces for authorities around the world that there needs to be significant increase and improvement in investment in health and education, uh, digital transformation, climate change. So if COVID has achieved anything in the last 12 months, I hopefully it will focus national authorities on where investment is required in their societies and their economies to make sure that we're in a better place to deal with these sorts of crises, but also, I guess, to help us get over the scarring effects that COVID-19 will inevitably leave. Um, in relation to Ireland, uh, the OECD, you know, pretty upbeat because they're forecasting growth of 4.2% this year, 5% next year. Um, they suggest that government support policies should not be cut back at this stage, that but that we will need more targeted support to address particularly long-term unemployment. Um, they're recommending a simpler examinership scheme for the SME sector because they recognize correctly that many SMEs will be left with significant legacies of debt, be it revenue, commercial rates, bank interest, um, or simple loans they've been forced to take out to survive the period of lockdown. So they're expecting higher bank bankruptcy risks and that SMEs should be supported through that process. Um, they also say something I thought was kind of interesting. You know, I have spoken about on this podcast and elsewhere numerous times about the massive buildup of personal savings in this country over the last 12 months and that this could unleash massive consumer spending power into the Irish economy over the next 12 months. They dampened that sort of enthusiasm a little bit by saying that the savings have been concentrated amongst higher income households and hence they have a higher marginal propensity to save, lower marginal propensity to consume. So you may not get the sort of strong rebound in consumer expenditure that many of us would have expected. I'm not sure I agree with that actually because um, I, I think everybody actually that has managed to maintain their earnings um, and their jobs over the last 12 months have inevitably built up savings because there's been a marked inability to spend money. So I'd be a bit more optimistic about the rebound in consumer spending than the OECD is suggesting. But it's it's a slightly interesting nuanced view on this optimism we've had about savings and the consumer sector here. So um, all in all, I think Domestically and internationally, people looking at the OECD report um, would take hope from it. And let's just hope that the vaccine program continues to roll out and that this positivity and optimism actually is realised. Yeah, I think that we're you know, obviously getting a bump in the road in the UK with the India variant thing that's going on at the moment. And nobody knows how severe and how big a problem it's going to be. It's very interesting that as we speak, the stock market is saying it's not going to be a big problem, economically at least, which I take some comfort from. Not a lot, but some. Uh, things can change in a heartbeat when it comes to the stock market, of course. I do think that provided we have that assumption about the vaccines, the OECD is right. 
the vaccines work, we get economic reopening. And it's interesting that, as you say, every single economic forecast as it comes out, whether it's IMF, OECD, or indeed any other forecasting body, each time the forecast is going up, not down, which is a great, which is a good thing. And I think it'll continue for a while. As you say, there are questions about the medium term. The short term is quite clear. We're on the up. Over the medium term, I think there could be quite big differences between the US and Europe. Uh, that remains to be seen. But um, I think it's right to end the podcast on that very upbeat, optimistic note that economies are on the up, stock markets on the up, are on the up, and that that's a direct function of the success of the vaccination program. Long may it continue. Indeed. So thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon.